1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Now, what has Greenwich got in common with Antarctica, Togo, and Mali? And what massive leap forward in understanding can be achieved with a telescope that looks only straight up? It's April the 26th, 2013. I'm N. Quentin Wolf, and this is Londonist Out Loud. London, Michaelmas term turn lately over. London. <laughs> okay, you know where you are. A radical transformation.
2: Very radical People transformation. Morally outraged with what's going well, on. I got very excited this week.
1: Seems reasonable, doesn't it?
0: As soon as you scratch the
2: surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square really would have a gallows. at the place called the Kittle Hoosie? You saw your show. Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey? What <laughs> the hell is that? A <laughs> man is tired of London, he's tired of London. So life. what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's it's a very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a
1: piece of information we're missing here somewhere. You sneak through the city, meet, what, amassing what, yourself in the sights. And Sounds, for the, songs, the Jewish stories, community,
2: who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland. We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing.
1: When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, uh, Boris... He wants to put an airport. <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris is announcing it is fatigue. Yes, the city is always changing.
2: Uh, people frequently say to me, "You yeah, know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished?" And I say, "No, it'll be dreadful. No, it'll mean it's dead." Inform and entertain—that's what it's about. London is a modern Babylon. That's very true.
1: Can we have some of the detail here? It is a beautiful day in London, and I've got quite the vista. Here in front of me I can see the uh, Greenwich Naval College the Millennium Dome over in the distance the ArcelorMittal Tower the Gherkin across to my left and uh, a lot of Greenwich Park down below me. And sharing this view with me is Dr. Marek Kakula. You're the public
2: astronomer aren't you here at the Greenwich That's Observatory? Right. Yes, public astronomer. It's what, a, great, what, a great job. What does that mean? Well, um, it, it's, it's a difficult one to explain because it's quite wide reaching. Um, I used to be a researcher I used to study distant galaxies with the Hubble Space telescope but here in Greenwich our telescopes are historic Um, and what we what we're here for is really to explain astronomy past present and future to the public and the media so my job is to help to put on exhibitions to give talks to talk to school kids to um, just make sure that everything we have here at the observatory is bang up to date with the latest discoveries in space
1: so you're what is called in other places an engagement officer and uh, and that sort of stuff
2: yeah there's a lot of sort of engagement with the public there's also a lot of engagement engagement with um the research community because you know we have to make sure that we're talking to the scientists and finding out what they're discovering um and that we're representing accurately so it's it's good fun for me and it means i keep in touch with all my friends who are still in research you're clearly in a very privileged position here to uh, presumably have to come to this place to work every day it's, it's no hardship to have to come and work at the observatory. We're in the middle of Greenwich Park which is obviously very, very beautiful um, and as you can see looking out over this stunning view, um, I, I think it's one of the best views in London. We've got the O2 Dome, we've got the towers of Canary Wharf we've got all of the historic buildings the Greenwich World Heritage Site and then um, off to the west you can see you can see Tower Bridge, you can see the spires of the city. Um, it's really lovely and you, you can even actually see um, the Olympic Park glimpse between the buildings um, over towards Stratford as well. So we've got the whole of london here or at least a good half of it um and you know we're also where time and space you know begin as well so it, it's a great place well yes it did
1: begin here this was britain's first uh, research dedicated research institute for for science wasn't it and i think 1675 it was uh, commissioned by Charles
2: II. That's absolutely right Um, we think perhaps prompted slightly by one of his mistresses um, Louise de Carouel may have been one of the ones who kind of pushed him towards this idea of having an observatory and the idea was to map the stars very very accurately so that they could be used for navigation at sea which is obviously very very important for a country that had imperial ambitions so it was right at the heart of, of what Britain was trying to do That's very interesting
1: because Greenwich has got quite an association with King's mistresses from what I gather. Oh
2: yeah Yes, and we're, we're looking down um, from the observatory down towards the Queen's House which is um, the first Palladian building in Britain um, 1616 I think it was started uh, and it's the last remnant of what was a, a, a sort of a Tudor palace here in, in Greenwich so um, lots and lots of royal wives and mistresses and things all associated with Greenwich and of course Elizabeth I was born here and you know, so a lot of associations it's a really special place, I love it
1: I'm really liking this south side of the, the river uh, thing that goes on because, of course, in Shakespeare's time, we've got all the disreputable pastimes going on on the on the south side of the river. Um, Henry VIII kept all his mistresses tucked away here for uh, ease of access.
2: Well, that, that's right. I think there, the the south side of the river does have a sort of a different um, a different feel to it, doesn't it? Um, and you know, we're, we're right next door in Greenwich to Deptford, which is obviously very very sort of buzzy area, uh, and we can see along the river all the way back towards kind of. Southwark and um, yeah it's it's a good good place to be
1: what is or what is and has been the business of this building
2: well we're standing right next to the original observatory building which is 1675 and that was sir christopher wren who designed it he actually was an astronomer before he was an architect he kind of took up architecture almost as a sort of a a hobby i guess after he'd been very successful as an astronomer so he was i suppose the ideal person to build an observatory um, here in greenwich Uh, so this is the oldest building um, and it's really quite beautiful it's got the famous red time ball on the roof which um drops a one o'clock every day so if you want to come and set your watch to greenwich meantime you can do that with our time ball um and yeah and it's got some beautiful interiors and some amazing um historic equipment inside it
1: Okay, now, I I was well aware uh, coming on this assignment that I was going to reach the edge of my knowledge fairly quickly, so I'm going to ask some potentially very stupid questions, including um, what was observable and what was observed from the observatory um, from the get-go? Well,
2: 1675 when it was built, I mean, this is only about 60 or 70 years after the invention of the telescope, so this was a new technology, um, and it really was opening up the heavens to exploration. Before that, people had to rely on the naked eye with a telescope you could see so much more out there things people had never seen before and also much more detail in familiar objects like the moon so it really was a period of great exploration but actually the observatory was founded for very very practical reasons it was about making accurate maps of the stars and the motion of the moon so that they could be used for navigation at sea so it was about saving lives it was about promoting trade and also of course there were naval military implications of it as well so that was why it was funded by government for very very practical reasons and And the astronomers here spent literally decades and decades and decades making extremely accurate maps of the positions of dozens and dozens of stars so that they could be used. And it really was a a kind of many lifetimes worth of work that they undertook here. One of the things that they had to do in order to make these accurate maps was define a very fixed point on the Earth's surface um, that was the baseline for the telescope that they used. And we call these lines meridian lines, and so that's the origin of the Greenwich Meridian. Uh, But we actually have several Greenwich Meridians here on site, because over the decades and the centuries, as astronomers got better telescopes, they built new setups and defined a new meridian line so um, the one that became the meridian for the whole world in 1884 um, is here on site but we also have two or three other meridian lines that were used in previous centuries Uh, one of them is still used by the ordnance survey so there's a sort of continuing story of the development of the technology giving people better and better measurements which could be used for very very practical purposes. And
1: so a precise ability to measure uh, time as well as a precise ability to to measure distances between stars and their relation to places on Earth, that that becomes terribly
2: important. Well, absolutely. And, And measuring your position on Earth and measuring time are intimately linked together because, of course, the Earth is rotating and the rotation of the Earth causes the sun to appear to move across the sky that's our measure of time so the the greenwich meridian line also defines the zero point for time so when the sun is overhead at the meridian in greenwich that is noon greenwich mean time and that's the time system that's been adopted for the whole world and all the other time zones around the world refer back to hours ahead or hours behind greenwich mean time i thought we used uh ut rather than well ut universal Coordinated time is what we use now, but that's a sort of an idealized time based on atomic clocks, which refers back to the time according to the sun here in Greenwich so it turns out that the rotation of the earth actually isn't as kind of constant and reliable as we thought there's slight variation atomic clocks are much more accurate and we need that accuracy these days so we count time uh, according to atomic clocks but we kind of base it on an idealized time according to the sun in Greenwich so it still all links back here and you can trace that story back for centuries
1: That's very interesting. So time has kind of decoupled from its uh, physical origins.
2: Well, that's right. And you may have heard these um, arguments and debates about whether or not we keep putting leap seconds into our um, atomic time, into universal time. We do that to keep the atomic time in sync with time according to the sun. Um, And so there are arguments each way. One is it's very inconvenient to keep putting these leap seconds in. And it's a little bit random because the variations in the Earth's rotation are kind of a bit unpredictable. So we just have to keep doing it whenever it's it's appropriate. But the other argument is um, if we do decouple it and stop doing the leap seconds over decades, centuries, thousands of years, our atomic time will drift away from time according to the sun. So you could be here in Greenwich in a thousand years' time and the sun is directly overhead on the meridian line but the clock says one o'clock in the afternoon rather than noon. So you see, there's a lot of discussions around it um, and it it kind of goes back to what we need timekeeping for. Um, You know, Is it a biological time? What time of day is it? Or is it more counting time so that we can use it for our communications, computers, stock markets, all of these things that rely on very, very precise time measurements?
1: It almost sounds as though you're talking uh, about a number of different
2: Times. Well, absolutely, and I think there always have been different different times. If you go back centuries, everywhere use the sun as its measure of time and of course depending on where you were, east or west, you would have a different time from other places. So um, time has always been different and of course now we know with Einstein um, that time itself is not constant and different observers, depending on how they're moving relative to each other, will experience different amounts of time passing. So time is a very slippery concept. We think we have an in- instinctive grasp of it but actually the way time Works is um, is actually more complicated than that. Um, we're all familiar with the way that you know when you're having a great time, time goes very quickly, and when you're having a miserable time, it seems to drag on for ages. So even kind of psychological time varies. So precise measurement of time is a very important thing.
1: Hmm, hmm. And, and, and why shouldn't something that's uh, conceptual be customised for utility, I suppose?
2: Well, absolutely. And there are many, many applications in modern life that do need extremely precise and accurate time measurements um, and you know things that we rely on in our everyday lives. So it, it is a very important thing. Um, but luckily, we, we're not responsible for the atomic clocks um, here. They're held at uh, Teddington at the National Physical Laboratory. I,
1: I was, I was going to ask that, but to, to what? Degree are you guys kind of arbiters of what what is or isn't the right time?
2: Well obviously we were the custodians of of time for the UK and then for the world for quite a long time uh, until the era of atomic clocks and the atomic clocks still do refer back to this notional perfect solar time here in Greenwich. So there is this connection in people's minds and we do get a lot of questions from the public and from the media about issues around time Um, and our staff, our, our astronomers and our horologists our clock experts are always happy to answer those questions. So we are a vast repository of knowledge and information about timekeeping in general.
1: One of my favourite stories about clocks was uh, i think the first pendulum clock that somebody had in a an abbey somewhere you know it was the only clock in possibly the country uh, around about the time when books were numbered in the in the tens in the country and of course timekeeping had become much more precise but there was no way of checking whether it was gaining or losing time because there was no other clock
2: to compare it to. yes yes i mean that that is a really good illustration actually because you do need to you know to be confident about your clock keeping time you need to be able to check it against something and as i say for many centuries um the earth's rotation the, the apparent movement of the sun across the sky was the most accurate thing that we had and we now know by comparing it to atomic clocks that actually it isn't constant it does vary you
1: mentioned the multiple meridians. Actually, I found a great um, uh, little chart here that describes the uh, the meridian that goes through Greenwich, the prime meridian going through Greenwich, and uh, it mentions the other places that it goes through. So these are, this, uh,
2: am I right in saying longitude? We're all on the same longitude? All on the same longitude. Longitude zero, that's the longitude of, of Greenwich, and that's the the, the definition of, of the prime meridian. So we share this longitude with the
1: Arctic Ocean, Greenland Sea, Norwegian Sea, North Sea, uh, us here in Greenwich, the English Channel, no surprises so far, but then France. Spain, the Med, Spain again, again the Med, Algeria, Mali, Burkina Faso, Togo, Ghana, Togo again, Ghana again, uh, passing through Lake Volta, and uh, finally the Atlantic and Southern Oceans, and then Antarctica. You'd, you'd never think that we share the uh, the, the, the Prime Meridian with Togo.
2: Well, it, it, it goes from pole to pole. So, you know, we have a bit of it in our courtyard here in Greenwich, but it does go through all of these other countries. And famously, there was, in the 19th century, a big um, argument with the French because they had their own meridian based on the Paris Observatory, uh, which I visited. And I have to say, it's um, a much more splendid building than ours, but not really open to the public. Um, and their meridian does look marvellous. It's, it's carved in marble on the floor, and ours is sort of a metal strip in the courtyard here. Um, so, you know, typical French flair and panache there. But um, there there was a big discussion about whether or not um, the prime meridian for the world would use the Greenwich meridian, the Paris meridian. Um, And, uh, of course, Greenwich eventually won the the vote of nations from around the world. Um, But as part of that negotiation, Britain agreed to adopt the metric system. So uh, we've nearly done it now. (laughs) Looking at some of the other places that that have meridians, there's actually quite a few. Yes, 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 actually. Any any place where you set up a telescope to measure the positions of the stars is defining a meridian line. So there are many observatories around the world that have meridians going through them. And this was the big problem in the 19th century. Um, The meridian becomes the basis for your mapping system. And there were lots and lots of different maps and nautical charts in circulation all using different meridian lines from different countries, different observatories. And it was getting very, very confusing. The 19th century, a bit like now, was a, an era of great globalisation. Um, the train network was joining countries up um, in a very sort of rapid fashion, and also um, things like um, telegraph system was allowing communications to take place at much greater speed than before. So It was becoming, and, and, and travel and trade was also expanding hugely. So, very, very important that you knew where you were, and people were starting to run into problems where there were incidents where people got confused over what charts they were using using what meridian they were using it obviously has the potential for for accidents so there was this perceived need that everybody should agree on one meridian line for the maps once they'd done that they'd also um you know in, in one fell swoop also agreed on a time standard for the world to use Greenwich Mean Time as the basis of the world's time.
1: Yes, there's that famous observation that the railways essentially forced us to, to standardise our time.
2: Yes, okay. yes, that's right. Um, before standardised time, everywhere would really use their local time according to the position of the sun where they were and so depending on where you were east or west of Greenwich, your time could be, in, in Britain, could be several minutes ahead or behind of Greenwich Mean Time. That wasn't really a problem when it took you a day or two days or a week to travel a distance by horse or by coach but if you're on a train and the train takes two hours how do you put together the train timetable if you say the train leaves Paddington at 12 and it arrives in Bristol at 3 o'clock is that arriving in Bristol at 3 o'clock Bristol time or 3 o'clock London time it can, it, you can see how it quickly becomes a, an issue and that was why in Britain um, with the advent of the railways that was one of the things that drove the whole country to adopt Greenwich Mean Time even though it means that if you are in in bristol when your clock says midday the sun still hasn't quite got to um the overhead position from your local point of view so uh,
1: the astute listener will have detected a school party uh in the background there all over the stainless steel line to which we had ourselves migrated What's the, uh, what's the big fellow here? There's a sort of a spike with a few curvy shapes around it. What, what's, what's that?
2: Yes, this is a, a metal sculpture which kind of embodies what the meridian line is all about. It's sort of an abstracted globe of the Earth. Uh, and you can see there's sort of a, a slot which is the meridian line going from pole to pole. There's a big spike pointing up which is the axis of the Earth about which we all rotate. So that goes from the South Pole through to the North Pole. And then around the middle there's this um, circular hoop which is the um, equator of the Earth. So you can see how the Earth is tilted on its axis and you can see where we are relative to the rest of the world. Is it true that as well as the I know you, you
1: upgraded the, uh, the Meridian line there to stainless steel fairly recently but apparently you shine a laser out over London
2: as well We do, we do. Um, we'll go in a moment and have a look at the telescope that defines the Meridian um, but on top of the telescope uh, from I think um, the, the Millennium we've mounted a laser, a green laser beam which shines out through a little hole in the wall and it goes across Greenwich Park um, right past the O2 Dome and then over the river and then up um, over Stratford. If you come out Of um, Stratford Station, and look up. um, You'll often, on clear nights, see this green band of light. On a very clear night, you can see it for many tens of kilometres out over London and into Essex. So it is actually quite a you know quite a cool thing that we have, and it marks the meridian. It's like our 21st century marker for the line. We have the metal strip in the ground, and now we also have the laser beam.
1: Well, you mentioned uh, having a look at some of the bits and pieces indoors. Should we
2: go and do Let's that? Let's go and have a look. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud. Tweet at Londonist Sound and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram.
1: Well, we're heading through one of the buildings here at the observatory and this is clearly a sort of a museum exhibit. I can see a drawing room. It looks like the furniture probably comes from the time roughly when the building was built.
2: That's absolutely right. So this room is um, dressed to look how it would have done perhaps in the 17th century. And the point that we're making here is that as well as being an observatory where astronomical work was being carried out, The astronomer royal and his family actually lived here on site, so it was a home as well. So you can see some lovely um, 17th century chairs, and there's a table laid with cheese and bread and apples um, and things like that. Uh, So it's a little bit Spartan. Um, The astronomer was not wealthy. He didn't have a massive salary. Um, and in fact we know that they often were very short of money up here so uh, there's some nice parallels with, um, with modern research where I'm familiar with, you never have enough money to do the, the work that you really want to do uh, so you're always scrabbling around trying to persuade governments and, and funding agencies to give you a bit more money and I think um, I can empathise with the, with the astronomers of the 17th and 18th centuries as well because I think they have the same problems that, uh, that we still have to deal with now. Uh, but they did actually live on site and in fact people lived here until well into the 20th century, Um, and so there are, I think, still um, a few people alive who remember being children and living at the observatory before it was a museum.
1: We're passing through a study now, grandfather clocks, maps and quills that just happen to have been left here, and uh, we're through into a sitting room. Quite well, a nicely this, appointed place, I'd say.
2: Well, this magnificent hat on the back of the chair with its uh, ostrich plume, I think that's supposed to be John Flamsteed, the first Astronomer Royal, uh, his, his hat, perhaps, as he would have gone strolling through the park um, after a hard night of, of observing. Um, it's not an original, but it's there, just to give you the feel for it. Uh, I'm always quite tempted to wear it myself, but I'm not allowed to.
1: I'd like to see you in that hat, <laughs> actually.
2: <laughs> Many people have said that, but I, I think it, uh, it, it may never come to pass. Alas. <laughs>
1: some beautiful views as we pass up a a bit of a staircase here towards the Octagon Room.
2: This is is one of my favourite parts of the observatory, Um, and it's it's one of the original rooms designed by Sir Christopher Wren, Um, and it is, as its name suggests octagonal in shape it's got these beautiful high windows um, giving views all across um, Greenwich and out beyond over over London and this was where some of the original observations would have taken place but it is actually unlike a lot of modern observatories which are very sort of clean and um, and clinical and workmanlike this is a really beautifully decorated room it's got this um, fake walnut well, not yes. um, it's got these very ornate clocks and it's got two really magnificent portraits of Charles II and James II who were the first sort of royal patrons of the observatory and they're there um, showing their fabulous shoes with bows and great acres of silk and ruffled lace and all sorts of things rather, rather <laughs> impressive not the way astronomers would dress today obviously, um, not practical, but still uh, What
1: I can't see here is the, the sort of place that you'd put a telescope
2: Telescopes would have been used in this room and they would have been used to observe through the large windows which could have opened. Um, but very, very quickly the astronomers actually moved a lot of their observing out of the room uh, and built new facilities elsewhere on the site. And that's one of the interesting things about the observatory as you wander around, you realise that it has been a working site for over three centuries. And that means that um, although now it's all listed buildings and you know we're very careful about preserving it. for most most of its history, the astronomers would put things up, they'd rip things down depending on what they were doing and what was the the priority of the times. So we have this original 1675 Christopher Wren building, which is very beautiful, we also have some 18th century buildings. We have some amazing 19th century telescope domes, some very ornate late 19th century um, buildings, and then we have um, a very very sort of ultra modern space age planetarium, all on the same site. So there's a lot of architectural history here as well, and you can trace how the priorities of the astronomers and the subjects that they were interested in changed over the centuries through the buildings that they built and the equipment that they installed here.
1: Now, I'm well aware, of course, that you have said everything that you've said so far a million times because of your your role here. Um, And it sounds uh, fresh for sure. But what I'd really like to do is ask you the question that will allow you to give the answer that you'd like to give. There must be a, a sort of a pet subject within the observatory or something that you hope the conversation is going to come around to.
2: There are so many things here which I get really, really excited about. My, my background is as a, as a contemporary scientist. I worked on um, galaxies using the Hubble Space Telescope and other really modern telescopes. So it's really very cool for me to be able to work somewhere here where I'm working with the ancestors of, of that technology. Um, and I'm working alongside curators who are steeped in all of the stories of the astronomers of previous centuries who, again, I kind of feel like they were the ones who who built up the subject into the state that I'm familiar with. So there is this kind of sense of continuity that um, I've never really had at a modern observatory. Um, This sense that I'm kind of continuing the work that's been done by people over many, many centuries. And these people, some of them were amazing characters. Um, You know, we think of scientists as being a bit sort of dry and a bit... um, uh, uh, a bit staid and uh, uh, you know not, not particularly exciting, but some of them had some really interesting stories. and Some of them were really awkward characters, and they had feuds and arguments um, and all sorts of dodgy goings on. Um, uh, so it does make really interesting reading. Well, you can't you can't just gloss over it like that. We need we need <laughs> examples. So. Well, um, the first astronomer royal, um, John Flamsteed, was a very uh, almost sort of obsessive um, character with the, the detail and the precision of his uh, of his observation. Um, and he was a contemporary of Sir Isaac Newton who obviously very famous scientist of the day doing amazing work Newton was very very keen to get hold of Flamsteed's observations Flamsteed didn't feel that he was ready to let other people see them Newton did get hold of them and published them and used them in his own research and Flamsteed was absolutely furious he, he bought up as many copies of Newton's book as he could find and had a bonfire
1: of them Well, Get, get Hold Of sounds interesting here, what, what happened?
2: Well I, I think it's all a bit shady as to how he actually did get hold of it, certainly Flamsteed didn't hand them over and say here you go you know. so there's a lot, of, a lot of ill will and bad feeling um, there and when, when Flamsteed died his widow actually sold a lot of the, the furniture and fittings and, and equipment of the observatory because she had no money. So the next Astronomer Royal, Edmund Halley, had to apply for funds to re-equip the observatory. So there's all sorts of interesting stories. Is that uh,
1: Halley as in Halley's Comet?
2: Absolutely. He did his work on Comets before he became Astronomer Royal, but that work and that fame was one of the the, the things that I think got him the job here. Um, So he was the second Astronomer Royal and obviously he has the comet named after him comes around every 76 years or so uh, and we do have a weather vane on one of the uh, observatory domes which is in the shape of Halley's Comet so it's quite a nice reminder
1: We should say something about the uh, departure of uh, Patrick Moore uh, Sir Patrick Moore who, who passed away just a, a few weeks ago um, what was his relationship with the Greenwich?
2: Well Patrick was I mean he was an amazing character uh, he wasn't formally trained in astronomy. He hadn't got a PhD or anything, but he became so knowledgeable and so steeped in it. Uh, I think everyone knows him for his TV work and his you know, many, many astronomy books. But perhaps what's slightly less well-known is the work that he did on mapping the moon um, in the 50s and 60s. And this was work that was used by NASA when they were choosing landing sites for the Apollo moon landings. So he played a really um, pivotal role in one of the the greatest achievements of of the human race. Uh, And some of the work he did was using... Um, Greenwich Observatory telescopes but by that period the telescopes had moved away from Greenwich and they were at Hurstman Sioux towards the south coast which had clearer skies and less light pollution Uh, so he does have a Greenwich connection albeit not with the site actually here in Greenwich
1: and uh, a lot of observers of the skies are commemorated in, in one form or another, uh, either with telescopes named after them or moons named after them. Uh, anything like that for Sir Patrick?
2: Well, absolutely. We, um, we run every year the Astronomy Photographer of the Year competition. We get amateur photographers to submit photos of stars and galaxies and planets and just beautiful vistas of the Milky Way over gorgeous landscapes here on Earth. Um, and we have a category in there for best newcomers. So this is for people who've only just taken up astrophotography the last 12 months Uh, and we are going to rename that prize the Sir Patrick Moore Prize for Best Newcomer just in honor of all the work that he did to encourage anybody to um, actually stop and look up at the stars Uh, and I think there are a lot of people who really get a feeling of that that sort of awe and wonder of the universe when they do look up and you know they can trace that back to something patrick did on one of his tv shows or one of his articles or one of his books so he has had a big impact i think on the british public and we wanted to commemorate that here And we also, um, we're having a a big exhibition opening in June here in Greenwich called Visions of the Universe, which is really um, showcasing about 100 or so of what we feel are some of the most iconic, beautiful, or scientifically significant images ever taken in astronomy. And uh, we're going to dedicate that to to Patrick's memory as well. So... um, We kind of wanted to mark the work that he'd done, the impact that he'd had on astronomy um, in a way that I think he would have liked. He he loved looking at these things and we've gathered together a hundred of the most amazing images and I think it's a really nice way to remember him.
1: So uh, he was renowned for an infectious enthusiasm on the subject. W- what about uh, yourself? Were you inspired by him or by something else to get into this line of work?
2: He was—he was definitely one of the people who inspired me as a as a child. You know, you, you, I think anyone who goes into astronomy in the UK has been influenced by by Patrick. There's there's no doubt about that. Um, there were other people though. Carl Sagan was an American astronomer. He did his very Famous series Cosmos in the 1980s. Um, in a way, he was, I suppose, a bit of a kind of 80s Brian Cox. He was quite, you know, quite a handsome guy, and he used to stride around on beaches talking about the infinite and um, the, the extent of the universe. And very, very inspiring. Uh, that certainly made a big impression on me. Um, and also, uh, like a lot of scientists, actually, not all scientists, but quite a lot of us, if we're honest, um, I was. Quite inspired by science fiction, I loved the sense of adventure, the sense of awe and wonder um, of these kind of extrapolations of what we could achieve with science going out into the universe, exploring. Um, and I kind of felt that by becoming a scientist, it was a way to kind of make that adventure real. So I was a big kind of Doctor Who geek when I was a child. You know, I'd still love to have my own TARDIS and be able to travel through the universe and visit places. But being an astronomer and being able to see them with the latest technology um, is the next best thing, I think. Uh, it's, it's just so exciting to be on the frontiers of human knowledge, to look through a telescope, to get an image from the Hubble Space Telescope and know that you are the first human being in the whole of history to see this object that you're looking at. Um, that is actually an incredible feeling. It's like you are there helping to push the boundaries of our knowledge forward. Um, so anyone out there who is thinking of becoming a scientist, I would say go for it. It's, it's an amazing thing to be able to do. I was
1: interested to learn that there the are meridians mapped out on celestial bodies other than our own. I think the Moon and Mars and Neptune. And, and, and I saw that each planet or each, each body uh, presents... Individual particular problems to somebody attempting to make sense of how, how the, uh, the, the topography of the planet works like Jupiter, everything's moving because it's all gaseous for example
2: Absolutely, absolutely We want to understand these planets and one of the things you need to do in order to understand them in detail is to map their surfaces um, and so when you're making a map, you need to have a reference point, you need to have a meridian line. Um, And so we've had to do that for all of the bodies that we've mapped, that we've sent spacecraft to. uh, And that does involve making this rather arbitrary choice about where you draw that, that zero line, which everything else then refers back to. For the Moon, it's not too difficult. The Moon always presents one face towards us. So historically, what we've done is we've just drawn a line right down the middle of that uh, near side of the Moon, and that becomes the meridian of the Moon. But for other planets, other moons, and objects in the solar system, we do need to make, first of all, that arbitrary choice, where do we draw the line? And often we'll choose a really prominent feature like a crater or a mountain, and, um, and we'll draw the zero line through that and that becomes zero longitude for that planet but how, how do
1: you do it with a body that doesn't have uh, fixed features isn't made out of rock something like the sun for example
2: very very difficult um what you can do is you track the moving features but with things like jupiter or the sun they are um they're made of gas so they don't have a solid surface they don't have fixed refer- reference points but even even worse than that, they don't all rotate at the same rate. So you'll see the um, the equator spinning and the clouds of gas moving at a different rate than the clouds of gas closer to the poles. So everything gets sort of twisted and, and, and moves around relative to everything else. So you just have to keep monitoring um, and you refer to things in terms of their position relative to other things. Um, but yes, you're, you're looking at weather essentially and we know from being here on Earth, especially in the UK, how complicated weather is. So you've got Jupiter, Saturn, Saturn and the other gas giant planets which are basically all weather they have no land they have no oceans they're just atmosphere mm.
1: Is there an element of uh, the, the field in general in the widest possible sense that's uh, either lagging behind or is impossibly far ahead? I'm thinking, for example, in the world of, of uh, sort of PCs and phones and stuff, things are very much held back by the uh, lack of technological advancement in batteries. So they're still heavy and slow and all that kind of stuff. H- have you got similar things going on in your world?
2: It's, it's absolutely the same. And, and actually, it, it's very interesting to see how the, the latest scientific questions of the day actually drive technology forward forward Um, here at the observatory they've been doing astronomy for over 300 years um, and um, astronomers were one of the first groups of people to recognize the potential of photography in the 19th century Um, this was a way not just of taking a a portrait of your wife or your children or um, you know snapshots of, of things you could use it to make accurate records of the scientific observations you were making and so astronomers drove the technology of photography forward to the point where it was actually useful for recording the very faint light from the objects that they were interested in. So actually they helped to make photography what it is today. Uh, In the 70s and 80s they were starting to get to the point where photographic plates and emulsions were not really good enough for the kind of science they wanted to do. And again they developed new technology, these digital camera chips that we now have in you know, in our camera phones and in our digital cameras. So there's been this continuing relationship between astronomy and photography for over a hundred years now, uh, and that spreads way beyond the scientific world and, and touches everybody's lives. But yes, at the moment there are some big questions in astronomy um, where really we're waiting for the technology to catch up in order to allow us to answer them. So one of the one of the big questions is um, what is the universe made of? And since the late 1990s, we've been able to work work out that the ordinary matter that we're familiar with that makes up our bodies that makes up the earth the sun the stars galaxies is only four percent of the total stuff in the universe and we know that there's um about four or five times as much dark matter in the universe um so we know how much of it there must be but we don't know what it's made of and we also know that the vast majority of the universe is is consists of this stuff called dark energy and all we can say is that it's there, that it seems to be pushing the universe apart faster and faster. Um, But we have no idea what it is. And at the moment, the kind of technology that we have, the telescopes, the instruments, really are not at a stage where we're able to kind of find answers to these questions. So those questions, burning questions in astronomers' brains, are really pushing them towards developing the technologies that will be required to answer them. So it's this continuous process of asking the questions, developing the technology to answer them, and then, of course, each answer then poses a whole new set of questions and we need to start the process again. So it's, it's a continuous process of development.
1: And this, this presumably is where the Higgs boson and the CERN and all that kind of stuff comes in?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's very interesting that particle physics, the, the science of the very, very small, and astronomy, the science of the very, very large, are very, very closely tied together because they're trying to answer the same questions. And if we want to understand where the whole universe comes from, we do need to understand how the tiniest fundamental particles and forces in the universe operate. So scientists at CERN are actually probing some of the same questions that astronomers with their telescopes are probing. Uh, and so there's a lot of crosstalk between them. Um, without understanding things like the Higgs boson we can't understand where the universe comes from so it's all part of the same quest to understand basically where we come from
1: well we know where we've come from we came from the courtyard and uh, we're in the octagon room should we drift over to the other part of the building
2: let's let's go down and let's see some of the really exciting equipment that we have here so we're now in our uh, time galleries and um, we're standing right next to four really remarkable clocks three of them are quite large and uh, they're made of brass and they look um, really quite impressive a bit sort of steampunky. Um but they are originals from the 18th century and these are john harrison's famous marine timekeepers so at this time Finding your position at sea, finding your longitude at sea when you couldn't see land, you had no landmarks, was a, a massive issue for mariners of, of all nations, and um, the British government put up a prize for anyone who could crack the problem.
1: Well, I'll, I'll just do a quick description of the object in front of us here. It's, uh, as you say, steam, steampunky indeed. Four dials can be seen on this side of it, on a sort of a, a decoratively embossed oval frame. Behind it are two balls like a a newton's cradle and they're connected by a spring between them which seems to uh, bring them back together Uh, i've no idea how this achieves anything useful uh,
2: (laughs) (laughs) well one of the problems with finding your longitude is if you you can do it if you have accurate clocks on your ship that keep really accurate time but the problem was was at the time they had pendulum clocks and you can imagine if you put a pendulum clock onto a rocking ship very, very quickly, it's not keeping accurate time. So what Harrison's trying to do is to build a clock that will keep accurate time on board a ship. And you can see in this one this is his very first attempt. Um, It's got these weird brass balls on sticks that are connected by a spring and they're kind of swinging in and out towards each other and then out from each other towards each other, out from each other. And this is part of the the mechanism that he used to try and compensate for the rocking of the ship. To sort of if you like, isolate the, the workings of the clock from its environment so that it could just keep going and keep accurate time. It seems incredible that these wouldn't be
1: influenced by the, the, the rocking of a ship there
2: he has lots and lots of compensatory bits of machinery in there, but this one didn't quite crack the problem. Um, and and, and it's, not just, it's not just the motions, there are all sorts of things that he, he uses. And if we move along, you can see the next one, which looks a little bit more sophisticated. Um, again, it's got some very nice ornate sort of etchings on it, but it's got these, these rocking sort of brass balls, again, moving in and out. And if you look inside, you can see the mechanism. All sorts of very complex kind of cogs and wheels and levers linking things together. And he's trying to he's trying to compensate for all the different effects that could spoil the clock's timekeeping. So one of the things he, he realizes is that as the ship goes from um, Britain into the tropics or to colder climes, temperature changes cause the metal in the clock to contract or expand, and you need to compensate for that. So he actually uses a, a, what we call a bimetallic strip that technology is still used in things like your thermostat your kettle, things like that so he's really kind of pushing the technology forward um, in these 18th century clocks to try and crack this very difficult problem of keeping accurate time at sea H- Harrison wasn't a clockmaker, though, was he? Well, he, I think he was a carpenter to start with, and so he comes into this field, but a really driven person. And, and many people may be familiar with um, Darva Sobol's um, book Longitude from the 1990s, which kind of tells the story from his perspective of how he sort of struggles to, um, to get recognition for the work that he's doing. Um, it's actually it's a very interesting, as, as always with these things, the, the, the real story is very, very complicated. Um, and the astronomers here in Greenwich and the Astronomer Royal were working on alternative methods, Um, and there was a lot of interaction between Harris and other clockmakers... And the astronomers here at the observatory. So there was a lot of cross-talk and feedback between all of these people. But they're all trying to solve the same the same problem. But you know, there was money involved, and um, and it was fiercely competitive. What was the prize? It was twenty thousand pounds, which in the eighteenth century was a lot of money. Well, so that, that, that's interesting because the observatory itself cost about five hundred and forty pounds to build. Yes, that's right. So just just a few decades earlier, um, it was it was done. You know, again, a familiar story for anyone who. Was in science research these days, you're always kind of trying to do it on a bit of a budget and, you know, you never have enough money to really do it the way you'd like to do it. But, um, you know, plus ça change, really.
1: Well, we've got some more mechanisms here. Oh, these are owned by the MOD, aren't they?
2: And they're on long-term loan because they're obviously part of the story of longitude, which is centred here in Greenwich. And if we move on to the final case, this is the, the fourth clock, Uh, and you can see the other three were these enormous kind of brass boxes yes
1: the size of bird cages this one this one here is uh, smaller than a saucer
2: it it looks like a a big pocket watch Um, and i always just think it's amazing that he goes from these huge machines and and he condenses everything down into this very small compact object again very beautiful sort of in a a silvery casing with a, a lovely kind of um engraved dial um but one crucial. Well,
1: so, so, no, hold on. What, what happened then between there and there?
2: He makes this crucial realization, which is that on board the rocking ship, actually, if you make your clock really small, the effect of the rocking is much reduced. And so, by condensing everything down into this small package, a lot of the problems go away. He still has to have very, very clever mechanisms inside to make sure that the accuracy is is absolutely what's required to make these measurements. Um, But by making it small, he makes things a lot easier for him. Um, And so this this one actually worked. It did the job. It enabled people to measure their longitude to the required um, precision when they were out of sight of land. The only problem was it was very expensive. And when he claimed the prize, I think he was basically told, well, technically um, the wording of the of the prize is that you come up with a practical solution this clock costs more than a ship that's not practical and he really had to fight um, then for quite a while to actually get um, the the rest of the money that he felt he was owed I think he did in the end but it was a very long saga took up a lot of his life from the first clock through to this one that worked after that other clockmakers get hold of, of his. They take it apart. They're able to see how it works, and they're able to start reproducing it. And it becomes part of the standard kit of ships sailing around the world.
1: When did this clock last tick?
2: Uh, well, they they all still work, and we do actually get them working. The larger ones, as you can see, are all working, and we wind them up regularly. This one, a little bit more delicate, so we like to kind of keep it and, and rest it for a while. I wonder, wonder what the value is of this. I think it's priceless in terms of its um, its significance scientifically and historically. Um, I wouldn't want to put a, a value on it. It's you know it was it was the clock that solved the problem that people had been working on for a very very long time, and in a way. It, this, you could say, this little piece of machinery is one of the things that made the modern world. So, you know, its significance, I think, is really hard to calculate. So,
1: so nothing's changed actually since the 1700s. It's still too expensive.
2: <laughs> yes, it's now expensive for a different reason. But I think maybe John Harrison would have felt very, very proud to see his clocks on display here at the Royal Observatory, given that in many ways he was working as a rival to the astronomers at the observatory. So you can see here that some Um, His his genius and his hard work is kind of being recognised right in Greenwich in the heart of this quest for longitude
1: Well I think we've got just time to cherry pick one more exhibit or item of interest around the place, what are you going to pick?
2: I'm going to take you to see a couple of our biggest telescopes Um, uh, we're an observatory telescopes are what we're about and we've got some really really nice ones so uh, come with me and I'll show you the other building
1: headed into another of the buildings off the main courtyard there I don't think I'm going to get tired of that view of London very easily we can see telescopes of the pirate captain variety the sort that you take out from an inside pocket and extend and we're now looking at something that looks like one quarter of a cartwheel this mary
2: well this is one of the meridian telescopes and we're in what we call a meridian building and this is where a lot of the donkey work uh, of the royal observatory was done for several centuries so there are many telescopes in here that were used for making those very accurate measurements of star positions Uh, and as the technology improved and subsequent astronomers royal wanted to outdo their predecessors they would build a new telescope and um, and then define a slightly different meridian line for greenwich that became the greenwich meridian so we have several of these meridians moving in time along the length of the building as new telescopes were added. But the thing I really want to show you is on the wall behind you um, and most people just walk past it it looks like an old copper drain pipe. I
1: didn't even realise this was an exhibit.
2: It it is I think one of the coolest things that we've got here. It's it's called a a zenith sector and it's a telescope that is really designed just for looking (coughs) straight up um, and just can be, can be moved just very, very slightly um, to look sort of either side of your zenith, which is the, the point in the sky directly above your head. So it's not a telescope that you would use for scanning all over the sky. Um, and it was used by um, James Bradley, who was an, the astronomer all here in the 18th century after Edmund Halley. Uh, most people walk past it because it really doesn 't look that impressive. I do call it the drain pipe, um, but I am very, very fond of it because this instrument was used to make several really um, cutting edge discoveries. Um, one of them was um, it made, it, made, it discovered that the earth 's um, rotation axis wobbles slightly, and that was really you know really new but the thing that i am most proud of it for is that it discovered this thing called aberration of starlight which is due to the earth moving in its orbit quite quite a high speed around the sun if you work out how far the earth has to travel every year um it actually is moving pretty quickly um you know we're talking kilometers per second That's, that's quite quite a speed and because it's moving fast um and the speed of light is not infinite it means that the positions of stars are altered slightly um, relative to their true positions because the earth is moving and we're kind of hitting the light Um, at an angle a bit like the way if you're hurrying through a rainstorm and the rain's coming straight down as you move forward it feels like the rain is actually coming at an angle and hitting you in the face the same thing happens with light bradley detected that through his telescope and although by this stage in the 18th century we'd had copernicus we'd had kepler we'd had galileo and astronomers all over europe now accepted that the sun was at the center and the earth was a planet moving around the sun rather than the fixed center of the universe they actually had no concrete proof that the Earth was moving. And Bradley's observations through this old bit of copper drain pipe actually showed that the earth was moving so it was if you like the last nail in the coffin for the idea that the earth was fixed and unmoving at the center of the universe so it really is a a really significant piece of scientific history and of course without that understanding that we are just a planet moving around the sun we're not the center of everything i think the whole of um enlightenment science really would have gone down a very different route it's that understanding that we're not the center of everything that we're not necessarily special um, which i think i would argue is is one of the the roots of of our modern world so you could say that some of that began with this this copper telescope here that we have on display
0: londonist out loud is sponsored by audible to claim your free book from a range of sixteen thousand titles try the audible service on 30-day free trial audiobooks can be saved as mp3s and played on your compatible phone tablet or desktop or burned to a cd and they're yours to keep for your free audiobook go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash londonist and click through
1: Up a spiral staircase or three. I'm ready for a disappointment actually because Marek's promised me a big telescope but the sign said it's going to be just 28 inches. It's an astronomy joke.
2: Well we're standing on the balcony outside um, our largest telescope with another really quite nice view across um South London. Uh, I would quite like it, you can just see the London eye in the distance from here. Um, and some of the new um, skyscrapers that have gone up in recent years so uh, I like coming up here and just standing and taking in the air and I like to think that you know, astronomers in previous centuries would have done exactly the same thing looking out over Greenwich Park but we're going to go inside now into the telescope dome and see the largest telescope that we have here on site um, so let's go through
1: Well, she's a big one
2: certainly is. We call it the 28-inch telescope. Um, um, I think that sometimes confuses people. It's got to be the lens, right? It is the lens. The lens at the top of the telescope is 28 inches across, which when you think about it is the size of a dustbin lid. So it's a huge block of perfectly configured glass. It took several years to make. This telescope is 19th century, um, so uh, it's over 100 years old. It is, if you like, a Victorian Hubble Space Telescope. It was the best that they had. Um, and it, it,
1: it's got a bit of a sense of Tower Bridge about it, doesn't it? There's something about the engineering that looks that, uh, that way, and it's all painted, uh, as, as you'll know if you've gone down into the footings of Tower Bridge you'll find um, all sorts of large, uh, I guess it's uh, steel equipment or iron equipment down there riveted together and all painted the same horrible green colour
2: It is, it's got that real kind of Victorian feel to it, again a, a little bit kind of steampunky. I'm very very fond of it, it's, um, it's a piece of Victorian technology that still works um, we do public stargazing sessions with it um, um, throughout the winter from sort of November through into March when the evenings start getting too light again Um, and you can see all sorts of things through it you can see the moons of Jupiter you can see craters and mountains on the moon Um, in fact the magnification is so great that when you point it at the moon you just see a tiny tiny bit of the moon's surface you don't see the whole of the moon through it the magnification is is much greater than that Um, and uh, Saturn's rings all sorts of exciting things you can even use it to see some of the brighter stars during the day um, which is a a pretty um, surreal experience the first time I, I did it I was quite surprised you've got this blue sky and there is a little star shining in the middle of it because the telescope can gather so much light it allows the stars to become visible against the brightness of the daytime sky so um, it is a a very very cool piece of equipment Uh, and you can see it's inside this large dome the dome actually um, a slot opens in the dome to allow the telescope to see out and the dome rotates on a system of wheels so that the slot can be positioned anywhere to see any part of the sky and then the whole telescope although it's a huge piece of equipment weighs many tons um, actually it's so finely balanced that you can move it um, and swivel it with just one finger
1: Silly question, uh, where do the eyes go in all of this?
2: Well you can see down here at the uh, the business end, um, there's a a thing a, c- a cylinder sticking out the side which has the eyepiece lenses on it um, what you can actually do is attach cameras to it so we can take pictures through it there's also strapped to the side of the telescope a smaller telescope tube um, and this gives you a wider field of view so it's um, it's a, what we call a finder scope allows you to make sure you're pointing at the right part of the sky find the stars or the objects the planets that you're interested in and then look through the big scope and make sure that you've got it pointed correctly Uh, We now actually, because although it's an antique and it's a historic telescope, it is also still a working telescope. So it has been continually sort of tinkered with and upgraded, and it does now have a modern computerised guidance system on it. So it's a kind of fusion of Victorian and 21st century technology, which I quite like.
1: Well, unfortunately, our tour of the Royal Observatory here at Greenwich has to... Come to a close at some point. I feel like we could quite happily uh, go on for a, at least a couple more hours. But uh, I, I guess I've just got two uh, two more pressing questions. Should we go outside?
2: Let's go outside. Let's go on
1: the balcony. <laughs> Let's go outside so that we can survey London once more. Um, I, I guess the, uh, the the this penultimate question really is to ask what you'd like to see through any telescope
2: that's a really good question there are, there are so many objects out there that, um, that we don't understand properly I spent a lot of my career um, trying to understand the supermassive black holes in the centres of galaxies and we know a lot about them now instruments like Hubble and some of the big new telescopes here on Earth have given us really amazing information but we've never seen one directly um, even though they're supermassive black holes they're still very very tiny and at these huge distances too small to see directly I would love to have an image of all of this glowing gas swirling around and then disappearing into the black hole. I think that would be amazing to see. So that would be my number one. But I think if you asked any astronomer, they'd all give you a different answer. Because although we've learned so much about the universe since the Royal Observatory was founded in 1675, um, there are still so many mysteries that we don't know the answers to. Um, And actually that's i think what makes astronomy so exciting for me Uh, it's great to know lots of stuff but it's even more exciting to know that there's stuff that we don't know yet and and it's that adventure of discovering what's out there
1: well, I think that reinforces the impression that I've been gathering as we've gone around here that uh, whilst we are talking about mind-blowingly massive distances and uh, concepts that are really enormous, like time and space and relativity, actually it does come down to the very personal, the, the Moors, the Harrisons, the Hallies.
2: Yeah, astronomy is about these huge questions and, and we've learned that the universe is unimaginably vast by, by human standards. But at the same time, these questions are all about us our place in the universe where we come from understanding stars planets galaxies tells us something about who we are and how we fit into it all so there is a very personal dimension to astronomy because the questions that it's asking and trying to answer are questions that are fundamental to all of us
1: So, in that case, the final question surely has to be if if sci-fi and and individuals inspire one to take up science, how do you feel about the prospect of a Doctor Who who is younger than you?
2: (laughs) That is a very scary thought. Uh, My my doctor was Tom Baker, who was, you know, quite a bit older than I was when I was a child. So, yes, now Matt Smith, younger than me, I'm not sure. He's not really younger than me, though. He's like a thousand-something, isn't he? So, you know, that's fine. I feel okay.
1: (laughs) Well, Dr. Marek Kukula, thank you so much for showing us around the Royal Observatory here at Greenwich. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Dr. Marek Kukula. Thanks, too, to Becca Evans and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.